It is such a joy to be with you at Zeal House. Incredible worship time. Thank you to the worship team leading us into the presence of God. And I love your new name. Zeal for the house of God has consumed me. How many of you are zealous for God and what he's doing here at Zeal House? And it has been such a joy. I was just remembering uh, our phone call with Luke back in April of 2020. Who will ever forget April of 2020? And I was working from home out in my backyard, you know, working because it's Florida and it's nice outside. And, and, and he, we, he was just talking about the possibility of doing his doctor ministry and, and just being a part of that journey and, and seeing him grow and thrive and just knowing how much more is in store. And it is so great to be with you here today. This vision, being a church on a secular university campus, third public university in the state of Texas right here, and you are going, and what a vision. How many lives are going to be changed and impacted and already being impacted by your ministry here? And, and it, it is such a joy. As he said, I, I teach at Southeastern University. We're based in Lakeland, Florida, but we have extension sites all over the country, now all over the world, Argentina, Moldova, Uganda, over 10,000 students. We are a Christian spirit-filled university, and if you want to go on and get your master's degree or doctorate in, in anything related to not just ministry, but other fields, we've got a lot of great stuff going on, and I get to direct now the doctor ministry and a master's program for, for pastors who will come in and, and be a part of getting better equipped to do what God's called them to do. But, but today, and just processing with Luke about what would be a good message to share, there was something that had been burning in my heart that, that I thought might be a, a great thing. And he said, yes, please, and do that. And, you know, when it comes down to it, we often use these two words as opposites, faith and doubt. Either you got faith or you have doubt. And when you think of the word faith in your Bible, you know, we read in English, we have two words that don't look anything like one another that have the same root in Greek, and that is faith and believing. The Greek word is pistis or pistuo, and it's the idea of of trust, of of this confidence, of of knowing that I know, and and, and we put not even just a feeling or a knowledge, but an action of placing our faith in something. And we think about it, Christianity is a faith. You say, we talk about the Christian faith. And Jesus himself said what it takes to be a Christian is to believe. He told Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. So obviously, faith and believing are are what makes us Christians. It's what brings us eternal life, what guarantees us a place in heaven. But we see that Jesus goes even further than that in the gospel of Mark. He told the disciples, verse 24, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And and so a lot of us know, like prayer in faith, we pray and expect God to do what we ask him to do. It's going to happen. That's the key. And sometimes we doubt and we don't see the answer and we think, well, maybe I didn't have enough faith. And you know people of faith. And there's sometimes when you're dealing with a crisis, there's that person you go to because you know they have faith. And when they pray, they see miracles happen. We're just singing about that just a few minutes ago. And in fact, miracles themselves in the life of Jesus, as we read through the Gospels, there's so many times that Jesus points to faith as the reason miracles happen. There's a woman who had a flow of blood that was miraculously healed. In Luke 8, 48, he said to her, daughter, your faith 
has healed you. Go in peace. And so obviously, faith, believing, core of what it means to be a Christian, core of what we need to have. But there's way too many of us that struggle with doubt. And sometimes you may wonder, does my doubt mean my faith is over? You know, for some people, you were raised in a Christian home and you were, you were taught the ways of Jesus and, and it seemed like it was all the good way to live and then maybe the chaos of 2020 happened, maybe something else happened. And, and these people who were telling you to love like Jesus, you saw the way they treated one another or treated people who didn't agree with them and you did not see the love of Jesus and it made you wonder, was this Jesus they told you about like them? Somehow it didn't measure up. Or maybe you were a teenager and you had a real dynamic pastor, youth pastor, led you to faith in Christ and they preached and tears were falling. Yes, this has got to be it. And all of a sudden later you hear, well, they cheated on their spouse, moral failure, corruption. But I knew Jesus because of you. And suddenly you begin to doubt this Jesus because of what the people who bore his name were doing and the way they lived. Or maybe you grew up in a youth group and grew up thinking the Bible was the word of God and you show up at college. Take your first philosophy class and you have to learn things like ontology and epistemology and be taught other worldviews and have your world worldview criticized by someone who's a whole lot smarter than you are. Or maybe it's a science class and biology and you hear about evolution and an ancient world and universe and all of this and it causes you to begin to question, uh, maybe all of this stuff I always believed wasn't true. Can I still believe it? Can I still believe it? And you know, so many people today are, are struggling with this stuff called doubt. In fact, there's this whole new phrase that's come out the last few years called deconstruction. You know, it's like faith deconstruction and people begin to question what they believe and come to this understanding, can I really continue to do this? Should I do this? Is this Jesus thing real? Is this Christianity thing real? Is the Bible really the word of God? One of the leading Christian researchers of our generation, David Kinnaman, did a study, wrote a great book called You Lost Me, and talks about how many young people raised in the church fell away from the faith. He says about 60% of kids who are raised in the church have deconstructed their faith in one way or another. One of the biggest stories like that in recent years came from one, anybody you were like in a youth ministry in the late 90s or early 2000s? Anybody? That was your thing there? You probably heard of this book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye, written by a guy named Joshua Harris. And man, he sounded like he was on fire for Jesus. We don't want to date. We want to court. We don't want to get caught up in that stuff. Only consider dating somebody you're going to be married to for life. And you may have heard he went on being on staff at a big church near Washington, D.C. and a big part of ministry there, seeing the ministry grow. But once again, and crazy stuff happened and all kinds of things happened. And Joshua Harris himself started deconstructing his faith and later even deconstructing his marriage. And he's been interviewed many times about that, even offered to sell a class for people who want to have their faith deconstructed and get away from Christianity. Yet some Christians were interviewing him, trying to say, okay, what exactly happened that caused you to lose your faith? And he said, it was really, I think, the outworking of the hurt that was there at that church. It was processing what we experienced in that church, and it was traumatic. But you know, he later went on to say, I want to be open to returning to faith if possible. 
And I just want to be able to say, if you're here today, and maybe you've been on a journey, and maybe some of the things you used to believe, you're starting to question. It doesn't have to be the end of your story. And what I'd like us to do this morning is to look at the most famous doubter in history. And if you have your Bible with you or a Bible app, take it and turn to John chapter 20. We're going to be coming back to this passage several times throughout the message. We'll be going and taking a look at others. But this is where we get introduced to one that I think a lot of us can relate to. Because we may be dealing with doubt. We may have some questions and some things that didn't work out in our lives or in Christianity quite the way we thought they should. And it may be that you are here today to give God one last chance. Or maybe you're not in the room and watching online, but just the idea, do I have any doubt? Yeah. It doesn't have to be the end of your story. And maybe you've never had faith, but you're willing to investigate Why in the world would people get up early on a Sunday morning and give 10% of their income to just show up and be at a place called church? Is there something to this? And I think the message that we're going to hear from this guy named Doubting Thomas is something that is more relevant now to us in the 2020s than it's been since the time that Thomas himself lived it. So John chapter 20 down at verse 24, and we'll read through verse 25 just to get started. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, which means twin, one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So let's stop right there real quick. This is taking place the first week after Jesus has risen from the dead. It may have been Easter Sunday, probably Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, sometime that week. The very first week. And if you're probably familiar with the story of Jesus. He came, he was born of a virgin. We celebrate that on Christmas. Lived among us for about 33 years. And then taught, did all kinds of miracles. Communicated what we call the gospel. But then he, he got this uh, opposition from the Jewish leaders who handed him over to the Romans. Romans and he was crucified, which is a horrible execution reserved for criminals. On Good Friday, he was crucified, but then as he promised, even though his disciples didn't quite understand it, he rose again from the dead that first Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day. And, and so that very evening, he appeared to 10 of the disciples. Of course, Judas was no longer with them there, but Thomas did not happen to be in the room And that's what John is telling us, who was there. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, you know, think about it. uh, Thomas was saying right there, I'd seen Jesus die. I knew he was crucified. I knew they buried him into the tomb. I've got to have evidence. I don't believe anymore. I've lost my faith because everything I trusted in died when Jesus died. And I cannot believe that he would rise again from the dead. And so Thomas has been given this nickname throughout history, Doubting Thomas. Anybody else who's a doubter, we always say, oh, you're a Doubting Thomas. And we use it over and over and over again because of this passage. But you know what? That's not the whole story of the life of Thomas. You see, he hadn't always been a doubter. 
If you go back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Mark chapter 3, Jesus had started teaching and preaching and doing miracles and casting out demons, and huge crowds of people were following him. Uh, the, the Bible word there is multitudes. You don't know exactly how many that means, but probably thousands. And then it says in verse 13, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12. Now just imagine, you were there and you had seen Jesus doing miracles. You heard his preaching unlike anything you'd ever heard before. Wouldn't you want to be a part of that? I mean, thousands of people are calling to coming to follow Jesus, coming to hear him, wanting to be with him. And Jesus loved all those people, and Jesus helped all those people, and Jesus did miracles and teaching for all those people. But you know, you can't totally invest. You can't fully train thousands of people at a time. It takes a smaller group. And, and there was something that Jesus wanted to do as he knew that his time on earth was limited and the future of his church would depend on quality, well-trained leaders that he had equipped, that he needed to pull a smaller group that would be with him and be given special responsibilities. Notice what it was said, that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And then we see the list of the names of all of those people. And down there towards the end, partway through verse 18, we see Thomas, one of the 12. But what we can see further up is Jesus called to him those he wanted. I'm not saying he didn't want the others, but he wanted these for a special task. And, and it's kind of like uh, anybody you go out for sports when you were younger... Anybody did that? I mean, I always was so envious of all the athletes. I was horrible. I don't know if you can see my feet. I'm, I got these weird feet that I can go backwards, but that means I don't run very well, don't run fast, not super coordinated. And I went out for basketball in sixth and seventh grade. And either we had to be so far ahead that there was no chance the other team would be able to catch us, or we were so far behind that there was no chance we would catch them if I was ever going to play. That's just how it was. You know, I, I just was not an athlete and not coordinated. But I remember I tried again sophomore year going out for basketball. I desperately wanted to be a basketball player. And once again, it was just the same experience as I had in seventh grade. But I remember there were some of my friends who were sophomores. And our high school was 10th through 12th. And, and there were a couple of them who got picked to play varsity. You know, there's something like, ooh, we had the varsity, the JV, and the sophomore team. And to be a sophomore playing varsity knew you had been picked by the coach because the coach saw in you, you've got the ability, you've got the potential. We want you to be on there to score points, points along with these seniors. We want you to be invested in because when you're seniors, you're going to take our team to state championship. That's the goal. And that's what Jesus was doing with all these thousands of people. He only could pick 12 that he could pour his life into, to invest into, to send out to do all of this ministry. And guess what? Thomas was one of those. Well, first of all, what that says is Jesus, who had seen everything and seen all these people, recognized in Thomas something that set him apart. But the next thing we see is that Thomas followed Jesus. He left behind his job, his house, his family, everything just to be with Jesus, to go and do this ministry. You know what? That's not what a doubter does. 
That's what somebody with faith does. So Thomas, for him to follow Jesus, to take and go along, he absolutely had to be a person of faith. And that meant as, as he went along and he saw Jesus do all the miracles and all the healings and casting out the demons, he had seen over and over again evidence that this Jesus was who he claimed to be, that there was something different about him. So later when Simon Peter spoke on behalf of all of them, when some, Jesus' teaching was getting a little tough and some of the, the crowd was starting to fall away and Jesus turned to them and said, what about you? Do you want to leave as well? And Simon instead went to him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we, speaking of the disciples, including Thomas, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So Thomas was a believer. Thomas had faith. In fact, he demonstrated again later in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 11, when Lazarus, who was the, the one who was raised from the dead a little bit later in that chapter, when he got sick and Jesus got word, John's, uh, Lazarus' sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Verse 4, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. Notice for God's glory that God's Son may be glorified through it. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back. In other words, the disciples were a little bit concerned if they're going to try to kill Jesus, and they're his followers. Maybe their lives would be at risk as well. Jumping down to verse 11. After Jesus had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. And Jesus was speaking of death, but his disciples thought, well, if he sleeps, he'll get better. But Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us go that we may die with him. I think what Thomas is speaking to is the comment that they were discussing earlier, thinking that Jesus was at risk of execution because he'd opposed both the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities. He might be killed. They might be killed as well. And Thomas was saying, you know what? I'm in all the way. I am all in for following Jesus. And if my life is at risk, I am willing to do it. So let's go. We've already said we're already in. Does that sound to you like somebody who would be a doubter? Does that sound to you like somebody who's questioning his faith at that moment in time? <laughs> Not hardly. But you know, I think Thomas is a little bit like me. Now, I don't know if anybody's an engineer, science major, anything like that. I'm, I'm one of these thinking, rational person. I love to analyze. In fact, I was an engineer originally before God called me into ministry. I majored in, uh, in engineering, did an Air Force ROTC scholarship, served in an Air Force civil engineer for seven years before I started ministry. And now I get to apply all my engineering stuff to trying to train ministers and doing that kind of an analytical sort of thing. And I remember being in first grade, and my mom thought she could see that kind of stuff and me and she had been an educator and she decided to give me a fun project. She bought me a toaster for me to take apart so I could see how a toaster worked. 
And I remember thinking, that was kind of interesting. I got the screw out and all that stuff. You know, honestly, it didn't work. I couldn't figure it out anyway there. But my mom was so proud of me. She took it to the elementary school principal and he put on a little display case that this little kid had taken apart a toaster. You know, okay. But but thing is, I do love to analyze things. I'm always analyzing. In fact, I kind of, uh, it's so funny. My wife and I will be sitting on the couch watching a movie and there'll be some reference to some historical figure. And I'm like, oh, what about that? And I'll get out my internet. Let's look up on Wikipedia. Let's find out the history of all that kind of stuff. Anybody like me out there? You're the analyst. You want to get everything figured out. And that's the way Thomas was. Because in uh, what we would call Maundy Thursday, the night before Jesus was crucified, in the Gospel of John uh, records in chapter 14, Jesus is kind of trying to let them know about what's going to happen. And uh, He does it sort of subtly, but sort of a good way. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Chapter 14, verse 1. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. So what's Jesus talking about? He's talking about he's going to be crucified the next day. He's going to die, but he will come back to life. And then he will ascend to heaven and he will come and take the disciples and all the rest of the believers, all of us to be with him forever. And if you read the King James, that's where we get the idea of the mansion built for me in glory right there because that word many rooms is many mansions. They translate it in the King James. But that's our home destination is to be in our father's house forever and ever with Jesus. But Thomas is there trying to figure it out and scratching his head going, well, well, wait a second. Uh, What are you talking about, Jesus? And he probably has an idea of Jesus taking a different pathway, coming in as a conquering hero, kicking out the Romans, reestablishing the Jewish kingdom. But instead, when Jesus asked, you know the place to where I'm going, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? I don't blame Thomas. I mean, Jesus sometimes spoke in ways that are a little bit, uh, I'm not sure I totally get or understand that. And it's kind of like anybody else like me, you're a map person. I've always, even as a little kid, in fact, thinking about being back in Texas. I grew up in Colorado and my mom grew up in Oklahoma and we'd drive through the panhandle. And my mom would let me get out the map and pick some sort of remote roads and some little Texas county road and go through the boondocks. I just loved to pick a fun way to get where we were going. And I loved to lay out the map. And now we got these map apps to tell us where to go and everywhere. And it's all right there. And we get to have all that. And this is Thomas saying, okay, just tell me the destination and I'll figure out the pathway. But Jesus, you haven't told us the destination. What do you mean your father's house? I don't even know your dad. What house are you talking about? How are we going to get there? What are you saying? And then Jesus gives us one of those verses that is so powerful in communicating the gospel and communicating an understanding of what it means to have eternal life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's it. And, and that's what he's, he's saying. And, and, and yet, Thomas, I don't think he still got it or understood it at that point in time. Jesus said, if you really knew me, know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. But can you just understand, Thomas? So it is Thursday night. 
And he's around the table celebrating the, the Passover with Jesus and hearing these words spoken. And his mind's going, what? And he sees Judas run off and, and Jesus telling him, go do what you do quickly. And he hears Jesus offer communion like we just celebrated. And then they goes out and going into the garden and he sees Jesus taken away, taken into the, the high priest's home, then later taken to the Roman governor where he is pronounced with a sentence of execution the next morning early. He may or may not have watched Jesus carry his cross until he couldn't carry it anymore and Simon of Cyrene picked it up and took it up to a hill and then he sees his Lord who was to be his conquering hero instead sacrificed on a cross dying the most torturous painful death for any, any criminal possible right there and then maybe he saw or maybe he heard about that body being taken down and put into a tomb and he had never seen anyone come out of a tomb before and his ideas of what his Savior, Jesus, ought to be didn't match up to the way Jesus was. And maybe it was that that next Sunday morning, he didn't hear the words. He didn't see the angelic vision that Peter and John did that led them run out there to the, to the tomb. He didn't see what Mary Magdalene had seen, Jesus there in the garden. He didn't see what the men had seen on the road to Emmaus. He didn't see any of that because he was hurt. Because he was disappointed. Because things didn't work out the way he thought they should have. Maybe like too many of us, he made God in his own image rather than letting God make him in his. He decided what God should be like and how God should work and how God should function and dying on a cross and being buried in a tomb wasn't part of that story. And he did what so many of us do when we get hurt. That is we hide. And we hide alone. We don't want to be with people anymore. As I get to travel for Southeastern University and talk to so many pastors. And there are some churches that are bigger now than they were in 2019. But far too many of them look out and they see 40% of the seats empty that would have been full before the pandemic. And granted, sometimes people are sick and they need help. Sometimes people are still afraid of getting the virus or something else. And sometimes people have jobs and things that take them away. And if you have to be online, we understand but for so many people, the isolation of, of COVID brought in a deeper depression than they've ever known. And along with that depression, deep questions and deep doubting that left some hurt. And others saw pains, maybe pain by a political rift or some other rift of all the junk that people were throwing each other in that season and really throughout history. And one way or another, asking questions and not getting things worked out and begin to find themselves really, really struggling. And like Thomas, you're hiding, you're alone. And for those few days, Thomas was a doubter. And that's why we see down in, in chapter 20 that he, Jesus did appear to 10 of the disciples in verses 19 through 23. Then in 24, we don't know how, but somehow Thomas ran into them. And this is where it said in verse 25, the disciples said, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nail was and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Would you give him grief for saying that? 
But you know, that's not the end of his story. And just like Thomas, our doubts don't mean necessarily that we don't have faith. And our doubts don't have to be the end of faith. It's not always an easy an either or. Sometimes it is a process. And sometimes our faith is strengthened when it's tested. Good friend of mine, one of the leading young Pentecostals of our generation is A.J. Swoboda. He teaches for us in our master's program. Now he's going to be teaching for our doctoral program as well. He's written so many incredible books. And one that he's come out with just a couple years ago was called After Doubt. And it talks about, and it's, it, 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 I encourage you to get it. And I think Andy said you got some available here in the back if you'd like. But if you're one who's been through a journey, he shares his own journey and what he's been through. Church planner in one of the most pagan cities in America and Portland and now teaching full time and just seeing his own journey and, and, and what has happened. And it tells the story. And what I believe is that there is a return and God is doing something in his Holy Spirit right now, especially this spring, all over the place. And that there is more of an openness of people who have been doubting or maybe never believed who are ready to return home because doubt does not have to be the end of the story. And what I see is what happens to Thomas is what can happen to us if you want to have your faith restored, if you want to live life the way God intended for you to live. And there's four things that we'll see Thomas do here in the next few verses that are so key to this. And, the, and it happens right away. Look at verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. You see, the first thing you need to do is to get together with God's people. You see, Jesus happens to show up when we get together. How many of you say yes to that? How many of you experience his presence as touch today while we were worshiping him? There's something about that. In isolation, it, it can be a challenge. And I know sometimes people have to be isolated, but there's far too many people that hide away that somehow think, well, I can do this Christian faith thing, just me and Jesus. But there is something special that happens. You've got an incredible pastor, incredible pastoral team and ministry, and you get together, and there, there is something that God does when we come together. And Jesus appeared with the disciples when they got together again. And this is something that we see and we know and we experience is that as we draw together, remember what Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And he comes and he visits us here. And then verse 27 though, that starts at the back of verse 26. Through the, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. So obviously he's different. He came and appeared and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it to my, into my side. Stop doubting and believe. The second thing we need to understand is we take our doubts to Jesus. You know what? Jesus invited everything that Thomas had said, unless I see the nail marks, place my finger into his hand, and my hand into his side, I will not believe. What did Jesus do? He spoke to every single one of those things. And you know what? Sometimes we're afraid, well, I don't know. If I doubt, I can't go to Jesus with him. Yeah, he's a lot bigger than your doubts. Okay? Yeah, if he is, he is bigger than your doubts. 
That's why you don't have to be afraid of this. There's a whole field of study called apologetics. And if you've got questions, these are people, brilliant people like J.P. Moreland and Lee Strobel. And um, there's even a lot of podcasts out right now on apologetics. Ones I listen to is Justin Brierly, unbelievable. And I mean, they're because there are good rational answers to so many of the questions that we have. There are good ways that we can do that. But notice that Jesus didn't answer every one of Thomas's questions, though. And sometimes we feel like, well, unless I can get everything figured out, I'm not going to believe. But notice what happened. There is no record that Thomas ever did stick his hand into the nail holes or his hand into the side. There's no record. John doesn't say that because sometimes we don't need to have all of our questions answered. And sometimes because God is so much greater than we are, we come into the presence of God and have an understanding that the universe is the way it is because there's an almighty creator who created it on purpose and gave up a sense of a need for purpose. Then we can come to that place and say, okay, Lord, my God, I believe, I understand, I get it now. And so we can come to him and become the one to wrestle with some of those things. It's kind of like the scientists who, who may have been dealing with science. And so many scientists have come to faith in Christ as, as they've been taught to believe in evolution. But even evolution itself has a beginning. Well, the Big Bang. Okay, well, what about who started the Big Bang? What existed before the Big Bang? And the ultimate question of all questions, why is there something instead of nothing? And if there is something, what caused that something to come into being? Suddenly, is matter eternal? And why do I have this internal sense of right and wrong? Why does even people who don't believe in God have a sense of right and wrong? And in all of these things, and sometimes it may be the miracle healing that defies all explanation that science cannot explain, which we've seen so many take place. But at the end of the day, we come to Jesus and say, okay, Lord, And this gets to the third thing we need to do. The third thing that Thomas did is give the right confession. Verse 28. Then Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And you've heard that before. That may be like, so? No, 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 no. You don't understand. Those two statements are absolutely incredible. To say my Lord means you are my boss. No, no more than boss. You are my master. You own me. You are my everything. I give my entire life to you. To say my God means that Thomas is the first one in all history to make the declaration that Jesus Christ is God. And we believe in a trinity. God, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thomas is the first one to make that declaration. That is the declaration of faith. It's what we could call a creed. That is a statement that says, Lord, I believe. I give you my life. I make you my Lord. I will do whatever you ask me to do. And I acknowledge you are God. You are the creator and the sustainer of life. And so Thomas, who had been isolated and alone and doubting, instead got together with God's people. He saw his opportunity to have his doubts laid at the feet of Jesus. And coming to Jesus, he then makes the right confession. Jesus is my Lord and my God. And then the fourth thing that he did, we don't get to fully see right here, but it's so strongly hinted at. Let's read on. It said in verse 29, 
Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. And some of your translations will have a, have a question mark there. There were no, transla- no uh, punctuation in the Greek. I used to read that as being Jesus kind of insulting it because you see me, you believe. Well, blessed are those who haven't seen me and believe. But I don't think that's the case. I think it's more Jesus saying, because you've seen me, you believe. But there are going to be a whole lot of other people who aren't given the opportunity to see me like you have, and they are going to believe as well, and they will receive a blessing as well. And part of the reason I think that is John, who wrote the gospel, goes on to then talk about his own commitment to the mission of Jesus. As he writes on, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what John is saying is that just like Thomas came to faith, I want you readers, some people I've never met, and Tom, I don't know if John knew that even this day, almost 2,000 years later, we would still be reading his account. People would still be finding Jesus by reading his, his gospels and hearing and knowing and understanding that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the one true Savior, and that by believing, we would have eternal life and hope for eternity in in his name. And because John was committed to the mission, when Thomas made his declaration, my Lord and my God, he was also recommitting himself to the mission that Jesus called him. Remember back in Mark 3, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus called to him those whom he wanted, and he chose 12 that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach. And he did. What we see over in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this is right uh, before Jesus was taken to heaven in what we call the ascension. This is Luke's version of what we call the Great Commission. And he says to all of his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, that's where they were, in Judea and Samaria, the immediate vicinity, and to the ends of the earth. And that was their commissioning, and that was their mission. And we know that through history, as well as the book of Acts, that the the disciples took that mission, and they took it seriously. Some went to Africa, some went to Arabia. We know that Peter made his way to Rome, and the apostle Paul made his way to Rome. That's a long way, 1,400 miles from Jerusalem. But guess which of the apostles went the furthest? More than twice as far as Peter and Paul, the Apostle Thomas made his way to India. We know from well-established historical fact, he went through Syria. He made his way to the province of Kerala in India. There is a church there today that still bears his name, the Mar Thoma Church. And it has become the seeds when the British came into India in the early 1600s. They found a Christian church had already been established there. And there was the roots and the seeds of the gospel were planted there. Then a little over 100 years ago, in part because of the fruit of Thomas's church and the part of the fruit of missionaries who've been serving there in India. The Holy Spirit has been poured out and there are millions of Indian Christians in India and around the world. 
A few years ago, one of my students from Southeastern University, from India, from the province of Kerala, invited me to go and speak to hundreds of India Pentecostals gathered together in a conference in Orlando. And and this is one of the world's largest churches in the city of Chennai. 40,000 people gathering together there every day to worship. Why? Because one who doubted did not let doubt stay the end of his story. And I don't know what your story is. I don't know what you've been through. And yet maybe one, you came to faith as a young child and you've never doubted and you've never struggled. And praise the Lord, that is so good. The church is built on people like you who stayed faithful and never wandered and never wavered. But maybe you're here today as one who has been dealing with doubt. God didn't work things out quite the way you thought he would. Some big questions have come up bigger than you've been able to answer. Maybe you've been hurt. Just look up hashtag church hurt sometime. It's sad what Jesus people do some things. But that doesn't have to be the end of your story. I want to encourage you to do what Thomas did. Make being together with Jesus people your priority, all right? Don't stay alone. Don't stay out in hiding, but come, get together, join a small group, get involved in a place of ministry and service so that you can grow in your faith relationship with Jesus. Number two, if you've got doubts, don't be afraid to take them to Jesus. Go get some good books, get some good resources, begin to do the study. And I believe you will find as I did as a young engineering student at age 18, when Jesus came into my life, he rocked my world and completely turned it upside down. But I am never going to go back the other way. But once you have, then it's time to make the right declaration. That is to make the confession, Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. I commit my life to you. And if you're ready to do that, I want to invite you to do that in just a minute. But I also want to challenge you to take the fourth one. That is all of us. That is to join and partner with Jesus in his mission. Because there are people all around us, people who've been dealing with doubt, people who've never believed, who you may be the key way that they come to faith. It may be an invitation for them to come back and join you at Zeal House next Sunday, that that's going to be their day to find Jesus as Lord and Savior. It may be you telling about the difference that Jesus has made in your life, that just like Thomas, it's going to be a part of doing that. And some of you, maybe God's going to send you to India or some other place where you're going to be a part of sending out what God has and what he has done.